Um, so we've been going through this series on, on the last part of Acts 2, uh, talking about how the early church um, used to do all sorts of things, how they used to live. So I would like for us to begin to, by reading the text, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get started. So our text is Acts 2, from verses 42 to 47. And if you don't have your Bible, the text will be here on the screen. So it says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So let's pray. God, I want to thank you for, for this morning that we're able to be here and to worship you and, and praise your name and also be able to hear from your word what you have to say to us. May, may you speak to us. May you renew our minds and transform our lives so that we can experience your good and perfect will. That's what I ask in Jesus' name, amen. So I remember when we, when we moved from the Mirror Center to the, to the Fondokirk, that in the, in the Mirror Center when you would go inside the place, it would basically be a room with a, just a white ceiling and mirrors on the sides and windows on the side, and it, it was very nice, it was okay. But then we moved here. And I remember the first time that I came in and I saw the Vondokirk, I was like, I entered into like tourist mode and I got my cell phone and I started taking pictures of everything because uh, it was so nice. And uh, one of the things that caught my attention as I was, I was doing a bit of research about the Vondokirk itself, and the architect that designed the church was the same guy who designed the Rijksmuseum and the Post-Hornkirk, where we meet sometimes, and also the Central Station. And the style that uh, he had is referred as Neo-Gothic, because it was, uh, there were some uh, artists and architects who were trying to bring back this Gothic style, which you had... Um, the architecture was usually this cross-shaped uh, buildings with uh, laced windows with all these uh, paintings and images. And they, what was characteristic of them was to try to embellish uh, the inside of the building with, with many paintings and words and everything. And I remember that one of the things that caught my attention, and not only on the first Sunday, but 
the Sundays that follow, uh, were the writings that are on these two sides of the wall. Uh, now, they're in Latin, and you might be wondering, well, did you, you can read Latin. Uh, but I, I just feel very blessed and thankful uh, to have Google in my life so that I can, I can just write this and find out what is going on. And what's written there is part of Psalm 150, verses 3, 4, and 5. And I would like to read them for you very quickly. Uh, what it says, I'm not going to translate on the spot. Uh, so, verses 3, 4, and 5 of Psalm 150 says, Praise him with trumpet sound. Praise him with lute and harp. Praise him with tambourine and dance. Praise him with strings and pipe. Praise him with sounding cymbals. Praise him with loud clashing cymbals. And our topic today is praise and worship. And I was... As I was studying the text for today, which my part is very short because it's two words, worship God, uh, I noticed that the chapter in the Bible where this word appears the most, it's actually Psalm 150. So it, it, it was very nice uh, when I would come inside the building for a moment of worship and I know that they would sing and play these these really wonderful songs, and I would be sitting there singing good songs, and I would look at the wall and inviting me to praise him with all sorts of instruments and with my voice, whether I'm there or whether I'm here or whether I'm playing the keyboards or playing the guitar or the cajon, whatever it is. Uh, this, I would really like feeling the mood. And it would also help uh, whenever I would have like a good week where everything just was great. You know, things at university were going good, work was going good, family was going good, and then you just come and you have all of these elements bringing everything together and it just, it seems to work perfectly. Uh, but we know that sometimes our, our weeks are not always like that. We don't always have good weeks all the time. Sometimes school or university, you know, you may be struggling with something, whether it's a specific class or at work, uh, you may be having difficulties with colleagues or your boss or employees or even struggles in the family itself. And then you come and maybe the mood is not so set for me to be like, oh, I want to praise him with, with my voice or with my playing or uh, with everything that, that I have. And this, uh, it seems to me, uh, may be pointing to a problem, is that we may be uh, placing the ground or the root of our connection with God or our praise with God on our circumstances, and whether they're bad or they're good. And this can become quite unstable. And, and I, as I was thinking through this, uh, 
I thought about Acts and how did they praise? What was the foundation of their praise? What was the foundation of their worship and, and their lives? So that's what I want to talk about. So, you know, usually sermons have uh, three points or three ideas that you want to expose. Mine has just one. So I'm going to expose one point throughout the whole thing. So um, usually um, most scholars agree that a key passage in the book of Acts for you to understand the flow of the whole story and, and the, the narrative is chapter 1, verse 8. So Jesus just finished uh, speaking to the disciples and giving them all sorts of instructions before he is about to ascend uh, into heaven. And then he tells them, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And if you look at the book of Acts, if you decide to like sit and read through the book in one sitting, bearing this verse, having it in the back of your mind, you will notice that from, verse, from chapters 2 to chapter 7, everything happens basically in Jerusalem. And then in chapter 7, something happens. And from chapter 8 to chapter 12, things spread to Judea and Samaria. And then in chapter 13, something else happens. And then from 13 to 28, you will have the church spreading all the way from Asia Minor to Greece and eventually to Rome itself. So I want to think about uh, my one point by looking at three passages in these three different places to understand what was uh, going through their mind. So our first text is in chapter 2. A little bit before uh, the main text that we're working on. So before the, uh, we have the, the description of what the church was doing, uh, we have a speech or a sermon that Peter does. Because they received the Holy Spirit. And there were people from all over the place there. And they start to hearing uh, these Christians speaking in their own language and they think it's really strange what is happening. So Peter decides to address this and tell them what is actually happening. And he begins uh, telling them uh, what is happening there. It's a, f a fulfillment of a prophecy in Joel. But it, it's rooted in something. And then Peter goes on talking about Jesus and who Jesus is and what he did. And not only that, but he, since they were, those people were predominantly all Jews, uh, he would often say that this Jesus who God brought here to do all these things, you killed him. And you see this message being repeated in in his sermon. And when he's about to finish, 
Uh, he says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And when they hear this, in verse 37, they say that they were cut to the heart. Or uh, maybe a better translation would be they were stabbed in the heart by this message. And as a result of this, uh, in verse 37, they say, well, what are we going to do then? And Peter says, verse 38, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of, of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who, whom the Lord or God calls to himself. And at the end of this, of this part, he says, the narrator tells us, so those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And then our text starts. And this highlights the importance of reading a text in light of its context. Because we may have a tendency to read uh, how the church was living and behaving during that time. And if we neglect the context, we might think that it's some sort of a social movement, but it's much more than that. It's rooted in something more. It's rooted in what Peter was addressing, that Jesus came and he died and God made him Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom they had killed. And I was, I was reading about a survey that was done last year uh, in the U.S. among the evangelical community, and they wanted some information about evangelicals in general. And they had, in terms of their methodology, they had four criteria to be able to evaluate someone who holds evangelical beliefs or Christian beliefs. And the four criterias were that the person, a typical evangelical, he would hold the Bible as the authority, the ultimate authority, where, he, where the Christian derives his teachings from Jesus and from God. Uh, he would typically believe that he needs to encourage others to follow Jesus. The third one is that he believes that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is vital for the forgiveness of sins. And the fourth, that Jesus was the way, the only way to salvation. And in terms of Christian beliefs, this seems pretty standard, as you would see in most Christian traditions. But the result, it pointed out that of all those self identified evangelicals, 85% didn't fit into these four criterias. 
So what is the ground for their faith? And moreover, for their living Christian life in Sundays and in their worship? Well, according to Acts, the ground for our worship and our lives must be Jesus. He's the grounds by which we do everything, by which uh, we have small groups, by which we come together on Sundays, by which we play our instruments and we sing our songs and we exalt God. It's rooted in, in Jesus and in what he did. So that first moment in Jerusalem was, was very nice. 3,000 people in one day just making the church grow. But like I said before, circumstances are not always so nice. And there were some leaders uh, in Jerusalem who started to question and oppose this Jesus movement. And eventually, this would come to, to a climax in the story in chapter 7, where these leaders in Jerusalem, they, they arrest one of the Christian leaders, uh, Stephen, and they ask him to tell them what he believes. And then Stephen goes on this sermon, which is a really impressive sermon. I mean, if you want to see someone expose like... Old Testament all the way to Jesus. Stephen's sermon is fantastic. And once he finishes, he finishes just like uh, Peter, saying, this is the Jesus, this is the Lord whom you crucified. But unlike those 3,000 souls, they were enraged by what he said. And then they ripped his clothes and they stoned him to death. Then they take their clothes, uh, his clothes and they placed uh, them at the feet of a young guy named Saul who was becoming the, the main persecutor of, the, of this Jesus movement. And as a result of what happens to Stephen in chapter 7, we have the first shift in the book of Acts. So Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So like I said, sometimes uh, circumstances are not always good. And in the first situation in Jerusalem, you say, well, that's... Really wonderful, 3,000 people, you know? Imagine 3,000 One Sunday, we're here. Next Sunday, 3,000 more. I think it would be a bit of a problem, but... I can imagine our, our expression of worship and praise would be 
very high. But now imagine a situation where one of the leaders is killed, and they're actually coming for you and your family, and you have to run out of the city. What would be uh, your expression of praise? Or what would be your, your relationship to God at this point? You know, there are many people um, and many studies that show that a lot of people turn away from, from the Christian faith when they go through times of suffering and struggles because they can't, they can't make sense. And my question is, how did they react? These people that were scared, were scattered and scared also. He continues on chapter 8, verse uh, 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So it seems like the circumstances don't affect their relationship to God at all. It actually makes them continue to preach in, this, in these other places that they were. And he continues in verse 5, and Philip was one of the leaders who was working alongside Stephen in Jerusalem. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And here comes a very interesting verse. And so there was much joy in the city. So in the first situation, we have something very nice, 3,000 people converted and great joy, and they were all together praising God. In the second situation, uh, we have persecution and suffering and death, but this doesn't stop them from having joy. And this joy is rooted on their message. And what is their message? The Christ. The same message that they had in Jerusalem and the same message that Peter spoke about. So again, we see that the grounds for their joy and worship and their lives are not the circumstances themselves, but it's something deeper. It's Jesus and who he is and what he did. Now the story continues and on chapter 9 something pretty amazing happens. The greatest persecutor of the church, Saul, has this miraculous encounter on his way to Damascus because he was taking uh, some letters to Damascus because he wanted to persecute people outside of Jerusalem. And he has this encounter with Jesus and he becomes a follower. And as things progress in the story, you see something very different happening in chapter 11. 
just before we get to the third part. So the, the, up to this point, the Jesus movement has been predominantly happening among Jews and the Jewish community. And now we start to see non-Jews embracing Jesus, which makes the Jew guys question, what are we going to do now? Do they have to follow the same things that we do? Do they need to be circumcised? Do they need to follow the laws? So in these chapters, you have all of these discussions about what these diverse and multicultural Christians how they, what they should do and how they should live. But in the end, they are very glad and with a lot of joy that the message of Jesus is being spread from Jerusalem all the way to Judea and Samaria. And now it's beginning to transition to something wider. And it's spreading more and more. So Saul, who was that persecutor, he, know, he not only becomes a believer, but he decides to become this missionary and he wants to go all over the place and to speak about Jesus, who Jesus is. And then in chapter 13, we have the third shift in the story. So chapter 13, verse 1 says, Now there were in the church at Antioch, which was a very important church in this second block, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manin, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. And here begins Saul, who, who from this point will later be addressed as Paul, and Barnabas going on these missionary journeys in all of these cities in Asia Minor. In Greece, they go to Athens, for example. And the book will eventually end in Rome. Now, something that happens throughout this last part of the story is that Paul's circumstances were not always easy. Actually, he had a lot of bad things happen to him. From being uh, driven out of cities, from having to run out of a city hiding because people were trying to kill him. There is one passage where the guards are at the gate of the city waiting for Saul to appear so that they can kill him. And the disciples are able to get him out of the city by finding like a hole in the wall and then they put him through that hole and he's able to escape. But he never stops speaking about this Jesus. Even going through all of these circumstances, he, he's not shaken by it. 
And his connection, his covenant to God still remains quite strong. And then in chapter 16, we have the third uh, passage that I wanted to, that I want to address. So Paul and another disciple, Silas, they arrive at this city called Philippi. And when they get, when they get there, there's this guy who he, that has this business of divination. So people would come to, to one another, future, like those sort of things. And the way that would work was because this guy had this slave girl who was possessed. And she was able to do these things. And in a certain conflict that Paul, that Paul has with her, he ends up exorcising her and the, then the demon gets out of her. And as a result, the guy's business just, you know, he, he loses his business. So he gets angry, he goes to the Roman authorities and he says, look, these Jew guys, they're, they're doing this and they, they're getting in the way of my business. And Paul and Silas, they end up being in jail. And the passage that I want to read is a passage that in this moment where they are in jail. So chapter 16, starting on verse 24, a little before, he says, having received this order, he put them, Paul and Silas, into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. So imagine them locked in the prison, and not only that, but chained to the wall. And you can only imagine that prisons back then weren't like prisons now. And if you think they're bad now, back then was much worse. So the first situation, you have 3,000 people and things just flourishing, and they praise. In the second situation, you have suffering, the death of someone, and they continue to go and preach about this Jesus spreading joy. And in this, in this third situation, you have this leader in prison chained to a wall. And how does he feel about this now? So chapter 16 Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, because it's typical of jailers to being asleep, all this happens. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were opened, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, 
he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and, all who were, and to all who were in his house. And he took them to the same hour of the same night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So the first situation, flourishing things, 3,000 people believing and their worship just, you know, things just work. In the second situation, a leader killed, persecution, they are spread throughout the place in Judea and Samaria, and they continue to preach this word, and joy is bursting forth. And in the third situation, a leader locked up in a prison in chains, and he is singing hymns. And then this earthquake happens, all their bonds become undone, and they don't run away, they stay there. And the, and the guard, shocked by it, he says, what is this? How can you be here? You know, I, I can only imagine his shock when he sees that they're still all there. And he says, what must I do? I, I, whatever you have, I want this. And so Paul begins to talk about Jesus. Because in all three situations, the ground by which they live their lives and they worship and have joy and rejoice is not rooted in their circumstances, but it's rooted in who Jesus is. Now, Paul, he... He spent many years of his life uh, in prison. And you can imagine that maybe in prison he wouldn't be able to do much. But actually during these times that he was in prison, he decided to write some letters to send to all these churches all over these places. And in one of, the, of his letters, he, he, he writes this letter and he sends to a church that is in Philippi, where he was uh, jailed. And so I would like to go to this letter and see what he says there. So the letter is Philippians. And I want to look at chapter 2 specifically. Now, Philippians is this beautiful letter, some people call the prison letter, because he's in prison while he writes it. And in chapter 2, you have the main passage of the whole letter, where you have, well, you can say you have the heart of Paul, what he was all about and why he's writing that whole letter. It's rooted in this passage in chapter 2. 
And actually, the passage is a hymn. It's a song. So in chapter two, he finishes verse five, saying, "Have this mind among yourselves, which is your, which is yours in Christ Jesus." And then the hymn starts. Whom, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above all and every name, so that at that name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And he finishes saying, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So the center, the, the heart of Paul's message and actually the heart of his whole life and why he was able to be in chains and still worship was who Jesus is, who was like God and he came into, um, he became servant and not only a servant but became obedient to the point of death and not only death but death on a cross but it didn't stop there because God exalted him and resurrected him and placed him high above everything in creation. And it is through him that we are able to work through our circumstances and maintain our relationship and our covenant to God and we are able to worship him. So in the end, the ground of our worship is still Jesus. Now this passage in Philippians 2, this song, was later addressed during the medieval ages when they had those chants, you know those Gregorian chants? We may find them a bit strange now, but. But in their composition of those songs, on two of those, you would see this passage from Philippians 2, 7, and 8. And they were sung specially during the, the services that would happen uh, during the Easter. So in Easter services in the medieval ages, they would sing these songs or chant these songs which would express Philippians 2, which seems very fitting because that's the grounds by which our worship is rooted and our, our life is rooted. And that's exactly what we have on this side of the wall. The two songs which you have elements of Philippians 2 and what this reminds us, now I don't know if that was the intention of the architect, but it reminds us that our worship, 
must always be grounded on who Jesus is. That's why we play our guitars and our cajones and we sing our songs here and we sing our songs there and we take care of the kids and everything that we do in good circumstances and bad circumstances, they are all rooted in one thing, in who Jesus is. So if you already met him, this can be an encouragement for us to remember who he is and what he did. And if you don't know him yet, I really encourage you to know him.